Um, another cool thing is uh, we're starting a new series. So this morning we're looking at um, the letter to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, where we see seven letters to seven churches. So if you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to kick off this new series, which is super fun. So Revelation chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 17. Revelation 1, starting in verse 17. It says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The, ste- the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let me just stop briefly there. So the book of Revelation, it's the last book in the, in the Bible, and it's in a genre of, a, of what we would call apocalyptic literature. So it's, it's a type of literature that's prophetic in nature, that speaks to themes, trends, and, and things that are occurring in, in the moment, contemporary things, and then it also has prophetic things that are for later. So it even says so in the book, write the things that are now, write the things that are later, and then it says um, we're going to start with there's uh, seven angels of the seven churches seven angels that means an angel for each church who's in some sense looking after the church and the seven lampstands are those seven churches now what we're going to kind of get out of this is that these seven churches one are in the the world that this letter is being written to it's it's the seven churches in asia minor that are kind of the audience of this letter this is going to be a circular letter that John is writing while he's being exiled in this island called Patmos. We're going to look at it in just a second. And it's going, to, it's going to go to this region. And these are the representative churches of this region. And who is it that's going to be writing to these churches? It's the first and the last, the living one. Behold, I was dead, um, but now I'm alive forever and ever. So it's Jesus, uh, the resurrected Savior, the King, um, who is the basically the one who is saying to John what to write to these seven churches. And so we begin in chapter 2 when it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the one who has authority, who is above, um, the one who Christ who has this, says this, I know your deeds, verse 2, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we reflect, as we listen, as we seek, and as we search, I pray that you would just make us tender and receptive, that you would open our eyes wide, that you would open our ears, that we might hear what you would have to say, not only to the church at Ephesus that was constituted of people much like us, but what you would say to us right here and now, today. I pray that you would help us understand. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So the church at Ephesus, I want to kind of run through some slides and and set this up. 
And I, I'm, I'm conflicted because um, the little red pointers are really cheesy. And, and I, I have an allergy to all things cheesy, you know what I mean? And, but there's little things I want to point at. So I'm kind of conflicted. So I can wave my arm in the general direction of those things or I can point at them. Um, all right, so here's Asia Minor, um, and these are the seven churches. <laughs> See, I just uh, here are the seven churches. Now, the island of Patmos. So, during John, the Apostle John's life, right off um, over here is the island of Patmos, and he is exiled there uh, during a time of, of persecuting the church, and he's exiled there, and he writes the book of Revelation, while he's exiled on Patmos. Now, what you're going to see is the port town of Ephesus is really where the letter would have come to. Whoever would have been the courier for this letter would have brought the letter. And then you see, in some sense, a circuit. And so, this is the first church that this person bringing the letter would have brought, brought that letter to. And then you're going to see it goes from church to church. And so... Uh, the church at Ephesus is right here. Now, Ephesus is an amazing uh, city. It's huge. It's a metropolitan area. It's, it's a, um, the fourth largest, some say the second largest, depending on what period you're looking at, uh, city in the Roman Empire. Because it's a port town, it's a city of commerce. Um, and so you're talking about an incredibly important city as well as a large city. Uh, a quarter of a million people living in this city, and so by ancient standards, that's really large. And, and so this is the, the first church that we see. Now, this is the ancient kind of road to the port. Um, there's no longer a harbor right here. There's a bunch of earthquakes that hit Asia Minor every couple hundred years. And so you actually see that the sea or the ocean or the, where, the, where there'd be a harbor now is way far removed from where the ancient harbor would have been, which would have been right at the end of this kind of um, uh, harbor way. And so this is kind of the ancient place where people would have um, uh, embar- uh, disembarked or embarked, whichever it would have been, coming or going. And um, if you look at it from this angle, you can see a little bit of water here, but uh, where we were just looking is uh, off... Uh, right up here, and so kind of the the road to where the the harbor would have been. This is the front of the library that was built just after the time of John, which was one of the biggest libraries in, in antiquity. Had a, a 120,000 scrolls, uh, and so kind of was one of the things that put Ephesus on the map. And that's kind of another shot of of the library at Ephesus. Here's the side of the library at Ephesus, which would have had the library, which would have housed the scrolls here. Over here is the Roman Agora. So every ancient kind of Greco-Roman city had an Agora, which was kind of the marketplace, which it's fascinating. I mean, any of the ruins you go to, it's just stalls. You know, it's little stalls or shops. And would have sometimes had living quarters behind them or above them. But it's basically what you would consider just the marketplace. And so this is where commerce would have been happening. Uh, it would have been where the hustle and bustle were. Uh, and it would have gone off kind of to this side. This is where um, Paul would have gone and, and preached. One of the places Paul would have gone and preached, he always found out, uh, found the marketplace uh, where, where commerce was happening, where ideas were being exchanged. If you want to know why Antioch has had for quite some time our offices in the old mill. We, we do that because Paul, the original church planter, uh, kind of showed that model. He always came into a city and he set up shop on, on the crossroads where, where people were, where, where people were interacting and where people were driving. And, and so we wanted to always set up Antioch just kind of where people were. So the coffee shops we're at are where people are at and where we're having lunch as staff or pastors are where people are at. And our day, every day, is kind of in the center or the hub of activity where people are at. We don't want to be on the edges. We want to be right in the middle, visibly and also in conversation. Uh, 
the stoa, there would have been a covering over the, the agora, which, which was for rain and, and, and kind of would protect. It's called a stoa. And that's where you get the name Stoics because uh, they originally also preached under the Stoas. And so you get the Stoics. And so um, this is the Roman Agora. Now this is where Paul would have disrupted commerce when he began to um, talk about uh, Jesus being the one true God and, and the goddess Artemis that they worshipped in this city uh, no longer kind of being the necessary and just about 100 yards over, this is kind of their theater, which would have housed uh, ultimately um, something like 20,000 people. It's huge and was built kind of in stages. By the time of Paul, would have at least been about this high. And this is where uh, when Demetrius, the silversmith, who was losing his trade because of Paul's preaching, uh, worked everybody into a frenzy where they would have come to kind of uh, go crazy and have this debate. And so that's kind of the theater in Ephesus. Uh, this is processional way. So they would have had festivals to the goddess Artemis uh, where they would have come and, and done processionals. The temple of Artemis built uh, about 560 years before Christ was reputed to be the largest building in antiquity. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you're talking about um, the Eiffel Tower, the, the, the Roman Colosseum, uh, the Acropolis in Greece. What, what, I mean, if you think today, places you would travel to that are known for one building. You know what I'm talking about? Um, it becomes a destination spot. It's a tourism spot. And so Ephesus is where the temple to Artemis was in the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the largest building. And you would have had pilgrims coming here for this processional, for this temple to worship Artemis. It was really tied into the culture. Uh, and this is in, uh, in the museum of Ephesus. This is the statue of Artemis. So Artemis was a fertility goddess, uh, and, and so they would have worshipped her uh, as one of the ancient Greek gods and then Roman gods. I think Diana, and I'd have to, I didn't double check, but I think it's Diana. Does anyone know? It's Diana and the Roman. The Romans just came in and took the Greek gods and then just flipped the names. Does that make sense? And so uh, you have Artemis here, and... Um, this is who they would have been worshiping and they would have been making little replicas of this um, for people to buy, to take home, to basically have as idols. Um, here's a picture of Paul from the 6th, 7th century. It's a fresco inside a, a grotto, a cave, that's up on the hillside overlooking ancient Ephesus. What's really cool about this, you'll see it um, on the cover of books that are being printed these days, it's one of the oldest kind of paintings, original paintings we have of um, the apostles or kind of the New Testament time. Again, uh, 6th century, 7th century. This is uh, outside that cave. Um, and so if you want to know what people in the 6th or 7th century thought Paul looked like, there's a picture of what Paul looked like to the 6th, 7th century artist. Now what's interesting about this is just that, uh, that Paul comes and they almost... Um, run him out of town. They almost kill him. I mean, they almost go into a frenzy and kill him. He, he ministered in Ephesus for quite some time. He wrote the book, uh, the letter to the Corinthian church while he was in Ephesus. He ended up writing a letter to Ephesus while he was in Rome. And then what's really fascinating is that after all of this time of ministry, a church begins to grow up in Ephesus and the Apostle John comes and basically makes this his home base and um, is, is reputed by church history to have died there. So there's a whole uh, martyrium to John in the ancient town of Ephesus, which is basically a, a commemorating memorial um, to John. And so it's fascinating that Paul, going to the Agora, going to other places and preaching Christ, that if you fast forward a couple generations, not only does it become... 
uh, a place where he ministers and gets a church going. But that church begins to grow and flourish to where John goes and makes that his home base. And that we get this letter to the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus now has grown to a point where it's holding strong. And there's an affirmation that, that, that they're not growing weary. And that they're kind of entrenched in this community. And so it's a fascinating thing. By the way... Um, Way later uh, documents will try and, um, it's just, this is just a fascinating tidbit, but ancient documents have nothing to the, to the sort, but later documents, um, Byzantine kind of documents, will say that Jesus' mother died uh, right there, you know, around Ephesus. Um, because Jesus, when he was dying, basically said, you know, John, this is your mom, you know, my mom, you know, this is your new son, and basically taking care of his family. Uh, and so there's these, these kind of much more recent sources saying that if John was there, so must Mary have been there, and Mary died there. And so they now have this kind of little uh, martyrium for Mary, uh, commemorating kind of thing. And when the Pope came and visited ancient Ephesus, he didn't, he didn't go to the one for John. He actually went to the one for Mary, even though um, most scholars w- would say that that there's nothing credible about it. But it's kind of an interesting new little part of ancient Ephesus and the tourism industry there uh, in ancient Ephesus. Um, So you have something really fascinating going on here. If you turn back, you have this cosmopolitan city with a lot of hustle and bustle and a lot, um, it's a part of culture and and there's, there's, there's tourism industry and there's commerce and there's coming and going with the harbor and you basically just get a whole lot going on. And Jesus says this, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know how you're, you're living your Christian life. I know how you're practicing it. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked men. I know you're good. I know you're moral. I know you're upright. And that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. I know that you know what is true. I know that you know the scriptures. I know that you know the gospel. I know that you care about the gospel. I know that you evaluate people and that you're not going to tolerate heresy uh, or or new kind of strange ideas that are just kind of fun or whatever. I know that you know what is true. Those are amazing things. You have persevered and you have endured hardship for my name and you have not grown weary. It's amazing. They have, they have consisted over time. This church has grown. It's entrenched itself. It's, it's not uh, marrying itself to the culture at large. It's not getting involved in syncretism. It's not going in errant doctrines. It's not falling away that way. They are serving. They are working hard. What would we call this? What would be the, what would be the parallel in our culture today? We would use words like fundamentalists or conservatives. Um, Christian conservatives, uh, theological conservatives, uh, devout Christians. We're talking about what what you would think of when you're thinking of people you grew up with or people in your churches or people in your family that have been Christians for a long time. Churches that have, have Christians in them that have come there for a long time. Families that have had Christians for a long time. And that Christianity has sustained. And they know their Christianity. And they know their scripture. And they can evaluate the, the latest Christian books or the latest movements or the latest things on CNN. And they can, they can adjudicate between truth and falsehood. And and they work hard, they serve, they, they serve in their church and they probably serve in their community and, and they, they persevere and they don't grow weary and things happen to them that, that would disrupt maybe less mature Christians, we, we could call it. But these people weather stuff. 
They, they, sustain, they know what Bible verses to go to when, when their faith gets tested. They know what Bible verses to go to and what things to think when, when they have uh, suffering in their life. And they persevere. Do you, I mean, we're familiar with this category, aren't we? And so they're affirmed for this because this is good. But then Jesus says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now that's one of those passages in Scripture where something is said and everything changes. Do you know what I'm talking about? There are statements that you can hear in life that just stop you in your tracks. Stark statements, serious statements. Um, I heard someone this week talking about a moment in their marriage when, when their spouse said, I'm done. You know what I'm talking about? There are serious statements that all of a sudden make you stop short and, and you realize, I can't just ignore that statement. I have to evaluate, I have to interact with it. Everything on life now has faded away except for what was just spoken. Jesus, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. He said that to Peter. I mean, what do you do if you're Peter? Hey, what do you think we should have for lunch? It's almost noon. I mean, everything now stops and you have to deal with that statement. I read a verse um, a couple of weeks ago from the Old Testament where God says to the religious leaders, um, why are you robbing me? What do you mean, God? I mean, you can't just not answer the question or ask what he means by the question. When God looks at you and says, why are you, ro- why are you stealing from me? Do you know that if somebody, st- like, I, I'm not, I don't share my food my, my mom does and my wife does. Um, I'm, I'm hemmed in on all sides. But, I, I mean, you know, I'm one of those guys that when someone reaches their hand over, like I feel like sticking it with a fork, you know, and it's like that's not yours, that's mine. You should have ordered it if you wanted it, you know. I mean, we react to stealing. I react to someone taking something. It's like stealing, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter how small it is. When people take things from you, it's a big deal and you react to it. And when God says, you're stealing from me, we know right away, like, that's a serious statement. I can't, I can't just ignore that statement. When Jesus says, I hold this again, I hold it against you. I'm holding it, not letting it go. It's in my hand. I want to interact with it. I want to do business with it. I want to talk about it. I hold it against you. I have, to talk, I have to talk to you in a serious way because there's something I can't get over. I can't set it aside. I can't, I can't, I can't move on because it's a serious thing. I'm holding it against you. You've, you've lost your first love. In the midst of all this sustaining and all this religion and all this, this faithfulness, it, you know, I, I, it's all, I get it, but in the midst of all of it, you've digressed. You've, you've wandered. You've, you've grown cold. You've, something's happened and it's not there anymore. Your love for me is not hot anymore. Your love for me is not exciting anymore. It's not what it was anymore. And I've, 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 I've got to talk to you about it. And there's an interesting parallel here. We, we see this church that has all of these distractions and all of this hustle and bustle and all of the goings on and all of the, the debates and in, in the, the cultural things of religion. And, and it's all happening And sometimes we can just get so pulled into that side of it that the the excitement of the message of Paul standing there in the Agora preaching a risen Christ, that, that, that passion 
that joy, that sense of I'm loved, I'm chosen, I'm called, I'm, I'm invited into this faith with this living, living Savior, and the, that there's this promise of all things new, that that, that freshness, that vitality, that, that that can get lost for all of my religion. And religion begins to, like, have you, has anyone ever been to the South? I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Um, in the South, there's a, a weed or this, this ivy called kudzu. Have you been there? Have you seen it? It's slowly taking over the, like the, everything. The trees, the, the whatever. It just, it just begins to cover everything. And it's like the, everything looks like Laura Croft Tomb Raider. You know what I mean? Like it's all covered with this ivy thing. I don't even know if that statement's true, but that picture popped in my mind. Um, I, I, uh, you see these things when you drive through Klamath Falls, like, you know, when you, when you take your boat out of the lake, dry it, rinse it, you know, and, and help prevent parasitic things from getting into our lakes. Why? Because if these parasitic things get in the lake and there's not something that's higher on the food chain, it's a foreign element in that lake, and there's nothing that's going to keep it in check or kill it, that thing is going to slowly take over. You know, so you've got you to clean your boats, you know. And, and there's something crazy about the chaos of culture and how we can get sucked up into it and that religion and all its little many facets um, as we go through life, begins to just grow and crowd out Christ. Religion takes over relationship. Our habits, our routines, our structure, our traditions, our institutions outpace or outgrow our passions, our love, our excitement. Um... I saw this recently in a USA Today. Blew me away. If you can't see it, it's the number of Americans holding passports. I do like that the red button gives me a degree of control. Uh, it's fun. I mean, I like the control part. The, uh, the number of Americans holding passports in millions, 11.1 million in 1990, 20 years ago. The number of Americans holding passports in 2011, 109 million 20 years later. I mean, you, you could parse that a bunch of different ways, but what that shows you is globalization. One of the things it shows you is globalization. Is, is Marianne Bach in here? One of our former interns from Moody? She she in here? Everybody tell her when you see her that how come you weren't at church in the 845 service? Your love has grown cold. You do not love God anymore. Marianne Bach has been, she, she's like, she lives more on a plane than she does on the ground. She's like beginning to grow wings, I swear. She's been to more countries for like a 22-year-old than, I mean, than you could dream of. And I'm like, how does this, how does this happen? She has a camera. She takes great pictures. Everybody just keeps buying her plane tickets. And she's literally been all over the world 20 times over. It's crazy. That's the new reality of this, this travel generation. This is globalization at its, at its finest, right? Um, information age in Twitter and media and the whole thing. There are so many distractions, so many options, so many things going on. In each one of those possibilities, religion has some kind of say and some kind of an angle and some kind of a connection point. And we begin trying to figure out how in culture, in a secular culture, in a commercial culture, in a fast culture, in a, in a mobile culture, in, in all of this, what does that really look like? How do we stand our ground theologically and how do we serve? Because there's so many needs and there's so many ways to serve and there's so many people to serve. And, you know, and we, we get going in this whole thing. And what does it mean to raise our kids as Christian? And what does it mean to be moral? And what does it mean to watch TV? Where do we draw the lines? Where do we draw the lines with movies? What are my standards? What are my morals? How do I, how do I indoctrinate and, 
incarnate this faith, this religion, and live it out ethically and everything else. And, and I, I get so into that. And how do I deal with the frustrations of always being pressed against? There's this cultural wars and the cultural battles. And, and how do I deal with the suffering? And how do I deal with the doubts? And, and I, I slowly just figure out how to live my religion. And I go and I go and I go and I go. And then one day I wake up in Bend, Oregon, and I get dressed to go to church, and there's something true of me. That the religion part has slowly outgrown or taken over or overshadowed the relationship part. That my joy has somehow been replaced by just a a behavior of setting my mind or setting my jaw or just heading in into the winds and, and just determination to live out this Christian life. Um, I mean, think about your own life. I, I, when I first became a Christian, I still remember this moment that a friend of mine told a group of people, she's like, this is my friend Ken. If you want to hear him talk for two hours straight, mention the word joy. I was, a, I was obsessed with the word joy. I had realized how bankrupt pleasure and hedonism and all that were. And, and then I was, it was like this paradigm shift. I was like, man, you mean God, you mean you care about my joy? You mean you want me to be happy? In, that, in my relationship with you, you guys have heard me preach John 15, 9 through 11. Remain in my love, says Jesus. You do this by obeying my commands. And I tell you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Commands are a means to the end of joy. Commands aren't there just for themselves. Obey my commands. Why? So that you can be with me, stay with me, remain with me. Because if our relationship's broken, you're not being obedient, you're not going to be with me. Obey my commands so you can be with me. Because when you're with me, you're happy. When you're with me, you're fulfilled. When you're with me, you're satisfied. When you're with me, you have joy because my joy is in you, my pleasure. And I'm like, you mean all those rules had a point? You mean all those rules like were actually smart things on how to really be happy in a godly kind of way? And I was blown away and I'm like, man, somehow I was duped. I was duped. Culture duped me. It duped me. It duped all my friends into saying, forget rules. Go break the rules. Because you got to break the rules or get away from the rules to really have pleasure. And I'm like, I mean, it was shattered my mind that like, that's actually going to lead you to not being satisfied. It's empty. It's hollow. It's like cotton candy. You think it's going to fulfill you. You eat it and then you get a stomachache. You're like, what was that? And sin promises pleasure. I mean, sin promises. It's got this big front upside, but then when you, you, you partake of it, it's so empty and so hollow. And we all know what it means to lay in bed at night after sinning and to feel just so empty. And I'm like, man. And so you, you, you say the word joy back in those days, I'll go for hours. And I wonder sometimes, is that still in me? Am I still excited about Jesus? Am I still someone, a sinner, saved by grace? Or am I a good Christian who needs to tell you what a good Christian looks like or ought to be? You know what I'm saying? Our love can grow cold. The second law of thermodynamics Let me just read this. This is uh, one of the Puritan paperbacks. All Love's Excelling by John Bunyan. And I, I turn to these every now and then because the Puritans, they were like the most serious people ever. But they really loved God. I mean, it's this, it's this crazy thing. But listen to what John Bunyan writes. Love in us is a passion of the soul. And being such is subject to ebb and flow. And to be extreme both ways. For whatever is a passion of the soul, whether love or hatred, joy or fear, is more apt to exceed or come short than to keep within its bounds. 
And he goes on and he says this, love in us decays. And then further on, next page, he contrasts it and he says, however, love in Christ is not love of the same nature as is love in us. Love in him is essential to his being, but in us it is not so as has already been showed. God is love. Christ is God. Therefore, Christ is love. Love naturally. Love, therefore, is essential to his being. He may as well cease to be as cease to love. Hence, therefore, it follows that love in Christ floweth not from so low and beggarly a principle as doth love in man, and consequently is not, nor can be, attended with those infirmities or defects that the love of man is attended with. Christ's love is fixed. Our love isn't. It ebbs and flows. Second law of thermodynamics is that in an in a open system, everything decays from a higher system of order to a lower system of order or energy. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Okay? Everything, everything decays, basically. goes from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. Except um, if it's in an open system. So in a closed system, I'm sorry, in a closed system, no other factors, everything goes from a higher state of order to a lower state of order. Energy runs out. An open system, however, where you have an input, you can all of a sudden balance that out. I mean, it's logical, right? Um, you open the drain in your tub, all the water's going to slowly go out. Second law of thermodynamics. You turn on the faucet and you make it an open system where you've got an input, all of a sudden the level in the tub can stay put, Right? Christ's love doesn't leak. Our love, second law of thermodynamics, leaks. Except in an open system where there's something that counterbalances it. So instead of, in the brief time we've got left, so instead of, instead of going on and on about the disease or, or talking about um, diagnosing the problem, I want to talk about the counterbalance. I want to talk about the solution, and I want to offer three suggestions. The first one comes right out of the letter here. Jesus says this, Remember, I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Therefore, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. The first one is this. Uh, We're going to look at three things. The first one is this, look back. Look back, and it's the discipline of remembrance. Look back, it's the discipline of remembrance. I want to show you a couple pictures. I was, I was sending pictures. We went to World Market yesterday, and we were getting frames so that Tamara could frame pictures. You know, every five years, you kind of update pictures in your house or something like that. And I was going through all the ones on my iPhone, and it was from, like, family vacations and stuff. And it was like... All right, someone's going to have to help me. There we go. This is from the Redwoods. That tree's like twice as big as my family, so we decided to keep having kids so that we could beat the tree. Um, actually not. This is Tamara and the girls. We, we were down in San Diego, and we got a, a wild hair, and we drove to Laguna Beach, and, a, and we stopped at a gap on the way, and all the girls got matching Gap sweatshirts, and, and we, they ran around the beach, Laguna Beach at night, and the surf, and then we got dessert, and it was like one of the best memories the kids had ever had. They got to stay up till 11 o'clock in California and the windows down in the summer. And, and this is like one of the happiest pictures of my life. Um, that's Esther. She's a happy kid. This is extra happy Esther. Um, right before she's going to ride on one of those hop-on, hop-off, open-top buses across the Golden Gate Bridge. It's one of my favorite pictures of Esther. Um, that's a picture of a picture that I took on my iPhone. Um, it's my favorite picture of all time. That's, that's an hour after Tamara and I got engaged. That cost me my whole baseball card collection. <laughs> I love my wife. It doesn't take but a second of looking at this picture to remember everything I love about my wife. It doesn't take long for you guys to look at pictures or to, or to get nostalgic and dig up memories where all of a sudden you're tied back into the emotions or the memories of things past. Do you, you understand what I'm talking about? 
The same is true in your faith. When you remember that you used to talk about joy and what did you used to say and why did you used to say it? And remember that first time you were presented with a choice to sin or to trust God and this just seemed so ridiculous. But you did it in faith. And it was like everything changed because you, you found yourself in a reality that you didn't see coming. But it all of a sudden made you go, aha, God really does take care of us. And he really does lead us when we obey him. And, and he really does love me. And he blessed me. And it was so much better than that sin. And you're like, wow. And you looked at God and you were just like, this is unbelievable. And, and what was that like? And what was it like the first time you read the book of James in the New Testament? Anyone else trip out on the book of James the first time you read it? It's like Henry David Thoreau meets the New Testament. I loved reading James the first time. I tripped out on it. Or the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and do you remember the first time you were with a group of Christians and that fellowship was so sweet? And do you remember the first time you messed up and you, you prayed for forgiveness and you were like, this is almost too easy. God, really? You love me that much? And you remember the first time you served and, and you walked away and you're like, God, how does it feel so good to give away so much? There's that remembrance. It says in Psalms, I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your miracles of long ago. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Mount Hermon. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, his servant. In the book of Hebrews, to a group of people being persecuted, the writer says, if you fall away, it's dreadful. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. However, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Remember when you stood up even though you were persecuted. Remember when you were made fun of or challenged and you didn't have the answers how to defend the resurrection or Christianity, but you just said, you know what? I love you. I love that you have questions. It's okay that you have questions. I don't have all the answers, but I know my faith. And I have a relationship with my Savior. And I, I, I wish you could know what I know. I wish you could experience what I experienced. Remember those earlier days. So the discipline of remembrance. Look back. Second one, look up. First one, look back. Second one, look up. It's the discipline of devotion or the discipline of worship. I would recommend to everyone in this church to read great devotional literature. Read Desiring God by John Piper and let it change the way you see reality. Read The Pursuit of God or Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Let it change the way you see everything. There are great devotional books that have been written by, by great souls and saints that help turn your eyes up and make you go, oh, I see it in a whole different way. The object of my affections is so much close or I see it so much more clearly and the nature of it is desirable. So if I see it as desirable, I desire it all the more. And when we read scripture, that happens. When we read great devotional literature, that happens. And so when we look up and we begin to see again an object worth desiring, something holy, something big, something majestic, we, we naturally begin to have our affections shaped and come in line with that. And so we have to have a discipline. We have to turn on the faucet. We have to have the discipline of coming into the presence of God or else we will slowly be cold and distant. We know this with our friends. We call it quality time. We know it with our relationship with our spouses. We call it date night or whatever, right? Um, and we know it with 
God, we call it quiet time. Or Bible study. Or prayer. Or solitude. But any relationship that's going to stay hot and, and it's going to stay close and it's going to stay dynamic, there has to be a discipline that puts you in the proximity with that, that other in a way that makes them desirable or allows you to see their desirability so that you can be refreshed and renewed in your affections. Does that make sense? So the first one was look back, the discipline of remembrance. The second one is look up. The discipline of devotion. Francis Schaeffer said, the problem of Christians in this country in the last 80 years or so is that they have seen things in bits and pieces instead of totals. When we get too far on religion, when it begins to take over our soul, we see everything in little bits and pieces in our life. It's all a little fractured mosaic. When we have this devotion, when we worship, when we draw near to God, when we pray, when we go to God in solitude, the the amazing thing about the gospel, the amazing thing about Christ, the amazing thing about God is when we go get with him, it's in total. It's the unity of everything. It's, It's just him. Everything else melts away. And then you walk away with that paradigm and it changes just how you move through life. When we lose this and we get obsessed down here, everything becomes bits and pieces. Everything becomes bits and pieces. Mary and Martha, we don't have time to, to read the whole story. But if you remember, Mary and her sister Martha, they're doing two good things. Martha running around taking care of the guests, honoring the environment and the people and doing, doing the deeds. And Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus like a disciple, as a disciple, listening and being blessed by the relationship. And Martha's mad and says, "Um, tell her to help me. And Jesus didn't scold Martha for being a good hostess. What he said to Martha was, I'm not going to scold Mary because she has chosen what is best. She's chosen to sit at my feet and, and enjoy this relationship and be changed by this relationship. It's not that Jesus was saying to the, the church at Ephesus that all this stuff is wrong that you're doing, your service, your perseverance. It's not that all this is wrong. I'm not going to condemn that. What I'm going to say is you're missing this part. The discipline of looking up, the discipline of devotion and having your affections in flame. Look back, look up, let go. I don't have time to get into this in depth. But here's the thing. All throughout Scripture, God commands us to bring offerings, to bring sacrifices to Him. There's something that happens in us when we take something of value and we give it away in reference to something else of greater value. It refines our affections. The things that compete for our heart, when we look at them and say, But I'm not going to let this overshadow or diminish you. I'm going to give it away so that you can be magnified. There's something about letting go that's transformative in our relationship with God. Another great book by John Piper, A Hunger for God. I think we have it as a book card. It's about fasting. It, It will change the way you understand fasting. Piper talks about when he's fasting. And and if you've ever fasted, you know this. The smells are what get you. And when you're there and the smells are what's getting you and, and you see the food and you're beginning to go, Man, I really desire food, right? It's a strong desire. Piper says the heart of fasting is, is, is not trying to push that desire away. It's embracing that desire for food and then looking at God and saying, more than this, I desire you, God. I'm overwhelmed by this desire, this hunger for food. But more than that, I really desire you. Now, in sin, it's the same thing. God, more than this pornography, I desire you. More than this eating disorder that's just ruining my life and my body, I desire more than image, more than popularity, more than these things that that are bad. I desire you. How much more also when we have competing desires, good things. 
do we look at them and need to also say, more than this, I desire you. More than reading. More than playtime. More than possessions. More than my friendships, even. There's, there are things, God, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to hold them with open hands and put them in front of you, but I'm going to offer them to you. I'm not going to let them compete with you. More than this, I desire you, God. So there's the discipline of looking back. There's the discipline of looking up. There's the discipline of letting go. Thomas Kempis said this, Jesus now has many lovers of his heavenly kingdom but few bearers of his cross jesus has many lovers of the kingdom we get all into the good stuff but not many lovers of his cross people who are willing to take the whole ball of life and to put it in front of god and say all pleasure all desire i'm willing to offer to you i'm willing to sacrifice for the desire for the one pleasure of knowing that I'm close to you, that there's nothing hindering our relationship, that there's a degree of unity and intimacy with you that none of this stuff is getting in the way of. I'm willing to bear whatever cross to be with you. I'm willing to take up my cross daily and follow you. And here's the interesting thing I've learned about service or works. There's this great debate about works because we know we're supposed to be obedient. We know we're supposed to do what's good. And we're always debating, man, well, if we talk about works, it's like, what, we're supposed to work so that God will love us? His love doesn't ebb and flow. I mean, so there's something funky if we're like thinking we're earning his love by working. So maybe let's not talk about works. And then after a while, we're like, man, everybody's sinning and nobody's being obedient. Nobody even thinks morality matters or service matters or works matter. Like, that's, that can't be biblical, so let's talk about works. And we, we pendulum swing between the two. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Sometimes we need to work for God. Not so God, uh, not so God will love us more, but so we will love God more. Sometimes we need to work for God, we need to serve, we need to be obedient, we need to do. Not so God will love us more, but so we will love God more. You see, it's in my obedience and in my serving and in my giving away and in my letting it go that I'm refined as to what my real pleasures are and what is biggest in my heart, my mind, my affections. It's not that God changes it's that I change so that I can be closer to God. So the discipline of looking back, looking up, and letting go. Let's close in prayer as uh, Chris comes out. And we saved a couple songs for the end here, um, one or two songs, so that we could join in a time of worship just as we think about the question, have we lost our first love? Father, we commit this morning once more to you, this brief time we have left just pray that whatever business we need to do, whatever you need to call to our mind, whatever reassurance you need to bring us, whatever we need to confess, that you'd be able to help us with that. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.